Uh, God, thank you that you are here. And Holy Spirit, pray that you would use the words of your scripture to help us know you better and be more like you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to start with a question. How many of you like surprises? Right? Some of you and some of you are like, eh. It depends on the surprise, right? Like some are good surprises, some are not so good surprises. Um, one of the books I read this summer was a history of French food. And I know right now you're probably thinking, our pastor's a nerd, and you would be right. Um, but one of the things I learned is that the French, the French have these great names for their kings, like Louis the Stammerer, or Charles the Fat, or my favorite, Charles the Bald, right? And I was thinking maybe we could name our pastors like that, right? Like, I would be Scott the Stud, just for you to know. So. <laughs> Well, then there was Charles VIII, and the way he died was he, he was walking through his palace, and he hit his head on a low door, and he hit his head and died. Okay, that's like the stupidest way to die ever, right? And I'm sure it was a surprise to him, and his last thought might have been, great, now I'm going to be known as Charles the Stupid. Some surprises are unwanted. Other surprises, though, are kind of good, right? Like when the test comes back with a higher grade than you expected, or when you're down to your last dollar and you suddenly get a refund from a bill that you overpaid, or when that person at work that you manage isn't doing a good job and you dread kind of having to fire them, but then suddenly one day they quit, right? Like those are good surprises, right? Like that's a good surprise. Some of your managers, you're like, yeah, that's awesome, right? And one of the clearest things about the God who comes to us in the person of Jesus is that he will surprise you. If God has not surprised you lately, you are not following the God in the Bible. You are following a God that you made up, that does everything you predict he would do. But the God revealed in Jesus is surprising. He doesn't do what we think he should do. He doesn't act the way we think he should act. His ways are higher. His thoughts are different. When we zig, he zags. And God's surprises are always good news, even though sometimes they don't seem like good news at first. And we see that in the story we just read about a woman named Deborah. Now, the background for this story is that God has delivered the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. And the Bible tells us that at this time, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So just kind of this lawless society, everyone doing what they want, right? And then the text we read says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that word again really matters because there's this cycle in the book of Judges where this story comes from where things are going great and the people forget about God and they just do their own thing and they start sinning in ways that hurt other people and then an enemy comes and attacks them and which causes them to turn to God and then God sends a leader called a judge who rescues them. And then things are going great again, and they forget about God, and they start doing whatever they want, right? And the cycle just keeps going over and over, which is kind of ridiculous, right? Like, who would do that? Who would forget about God when things are going well and only go to God when they're in trouble over and over and over again? What kind of a fool would do that? You. The other, the other, the other service, they all raised their hands. Like, they were more in touch with themselves, right? Like... You're that fool. I'm that fool. This is what we do, right? So here in this story, the Israelites yet again are ignoring God, and an enemy king named Jabin sends his general named Sisera to attack the Israelites. 
And these guys, these Canaanite guys, they are evil to the core, okay? They burn their children alive as part of their sacrifices to their pagan gods. They force men and women into sexual slavery. They brutally oppress other countries. The the text says this, because Sisera had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites, they're very oppressive, for 20 years they cried out to the Lord for help. And that word iron kind of matters because, see, Israel is still fighting with Bronze Age technology. But Sisera has Iron Age technology. So Israel is outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. They need to take a stand. They're going to need a right-hand man. I'm quoting from Hamilton. So some of you like Hamilton. That's great. So the next verse says, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Well, now that's a surprise. The right-hand man turns out to be a woman. And it says that she's a prophet, which was the highest spiritual authority there was. Basically, she's the senior pastor or the pope or however you want to think about this, right? She's also the highest secular authority. It says the Israelites went to her to have their disputes decided. So she's the Supreme Court and the Congress kind of combined. Not only that, Israel is being attacked by enemies. So it says Deborah sent for Barak, a general, and said to him, The Lord commands you, go take with you 10,000 men and lead them up to Mount Tabor to attack Sisera, right? So she has authority to send for a general. In other words, she's the commander-in-chief. So she's the pope, the congress, the president, the supreme court, four-star general, and chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, okay? All in one woman. That's who she is. Now, sometimes you will hear people say, the Bible says that women shouldn't be in leadership, especially over men. I'm not sure what those people do with the story. So let me just do an aside kind of on this issue, just a kind of a a little tangent here. Deborah here clearly leads and leads men, right? Clearly, right? And and as you know, we here, we have women in leadership. Pastors like Rosalind and our executive pastor, Dana, we strongly believe in women in leadership. And sometimes I'll hear folks say, well, that's because all that stuff in the Bible about women not leading, that's just cultural for back then so we can ignore it. No, that's a terrible reason. That's a terrible, you can dismiss anything with that's just cultural, right? Oh, all that stuff about caring for the poor, that was before the government did it. That's just cultural. We can ignore that command, right? One of the great values of scripture is it tells us what we don't want to hear and what does not line up with our culture, which means it can correct us and our culture. And if we dismiss what we don't like with that's just cultural, then it loses its power to correct us. No, no. The reason we strongly believe in women leadership here is because the Bible does. And yes, there are some passages in the Bible where it says women shouldn't lead. But there are other passages like here with Deborah where they clearly do lead. Or in the New Testament, the first church in Europe was founded by a woman named Lydia. In the book of Acts, there's a woman named Priscilla who, along with her husband Aquila, correct an apostle's faulty theology. And whenever they're mentioned, Priscilla's name always comes first, indicating she had greater authority. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul refers to a female apostle, that's the highest role there is, female apostle named Hunia. So yes, there are some places where it says women shouldn't lead, but other places in the Bible, women do lead and have authority. That does not mean scripture contradicts itself. It means on this issue, scripture gives us several options. And where scripture gives us multiple options, we can choose based on the Holy Spirit's leading and what's going to advance God's kingdom the best. Where scripture gives us only one option, which is in most cases, we're called to obey. Okay, now 
I know there's a lot of complexity there and I can't go into it all in this sermon. So, you know, that's just brief aside. Feel free to email me with your questions, your comments, or your concerns. End of tangent. Okay, all that said, nevertheless, in this culture, it would have been surprising to have a female commander-in-chief. So here's God's surprise number one. Sometimes our weaknesses make us strong. Pastor John Ortberg says, you kind of got to wonder, when God called Deborah to do this, did she say to God, I I can't do that job. That, That job's for boys, God. And God would have said, well, Deborah, part of being like the whole creator, sustainer, and maker of the universe is I kind of know what I'm doing. And I call you, Deborah, because I believe in you. And I will take what your culture says as a weakness, being a woman, and I will use it as a strength. And as the story goes on, what we see is all the men in Israel are cowards. They refuse to deal with this attacking enemy, Sisera, right? When Deborah tells Barak to go attack Sisera, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. What? I thought women couldn't fight. Why does he want a girl to come along with him? Well, because he doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust that God is with him. Even though Deborah has clearly said, God is with you, he doesn't trust that, and so he's afraid. In fact, all the men in Israel are afraid. The next chapter is a poetic retelling of this story. It's called the Song of Deborah. And in it, Deborah says this, in the days of Shamgar, the highways were abandoned because they weren't safe because Sisera was attacking the highways, right? Villagers in Israel would not fight. They just cowered in their tents. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. She sounds exasperated, right? Like, well, if none of you are man enough to defend us, I guess I'll do it myself, right? Jeez, do I have to do everything around here? Your dinner's in the oven. (laughs) I'm going to go defend us, right? So Deborah says to Barak, I will go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman which for a warrior in that culture would have been very embarrassing. And what she's driving at is that when we don't take the risks God calls us to take, when we shrink back in fear from maybe giving some of our money to advance God's purposes, or to seek reconciliation with a friend or a spouse, or to serve someone in some way, when we shrink back from the risks God calls us to take because we don't trust that he will use even our weaknesses as strength in the way that Barak does here, We miss the blessing he has for us. Barak is going to miss the blessing God had for him, the honor of this victory. And all the heroes in this story are women. And being a woman was actually, it was considered a weakness in that culture, but it was actually a strength. Because, see, the bad guys underestimated them because they were women. So they weren't on their guard against them. And so they're all surprised when they get beaten by a girl. Is there something in your life that you consider a weakness? Maybe you don't think you look right or have the right job or have the right grades or have the right achievements or the right athletic skill or you're the right age or you're the right education. Are you sure it's a weakness? Maybe it's just our culture that says it's a weakness. Maybe God wants to use it as a strength. See, God's calling all of us to something. What is he calling you to? Your attitude will determine your altitude, so find an exit off the excuse freeway. Okay? Let's keep going. Okay? Let's keep going with the story. So... Deborah, after this, Deborah cleverly lures Sisera to come fight near a river, right? And God sends a rainstorm, and the river overflows, and those iron chariots that Sisera was so proud of get stuck in the mud. 
And the Israelites wipe out his army, which are just sitting ducks because they're just stuck. They're just mired in this mud. So sometimes our weaknesses are strengths. Surprise number two, sometimes our strengths are actually weaknesses and make us weak. See, iron chariots are useless in mud. All they do is they just get stuck. And so they just get stuck there and Israel wipes them out, right? The thing that made Sisera strong made him weak. So his army is defeated, right? And then it says, Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot, brave guy that he is, right? To the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, because there was an alliance between Jabin, Sisera's king, and Heber. So Sisera thinks he's going to be safe there, right? And he asked Jael for some water. But instead it says, she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Isn't that cute? It's like putting a three-year-old down for a nap, right? Here's your milk, dear. Let me cover you with a blanket. Go to sleep. She's trying to make him sleepy, trying to lure him into a false sense of security, which was really easy to do because, see, Sisera thinks that surely only a big, strong man could defeat big, strong Sisera with his big, strong, now useless iron chariots. Certainly a woman doesn't pose any danger to me. So he takes his nap. And then it says, but Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground. Surprise! <laughs> Didn't see that one coming, right? She drove the, pe- t- uh, the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. No! <laughs> Maybe the three most pointless words in the Bible, right? And in case you miss it, The next chapter, it says, Most blessed of women be Jael. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank. There he fell. Dead. (laughs) Okay, are we all clear on what happened to Sisera? Right? He's not only merely dead, he's really most sincerely dead. And this would have been quite a surprise for Sisera because the last thing to enter his mind other than that tent peg was that he would be defeated by a woman. But you got to hand it to her. She did a great job here. She really hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Don't be, I, it was right there. I had, you would have used it too. You would have done it too, right? Sisera's confidence in his own strength The things he thought made him strong made him weak by giving him this false sense of security. Our strengths can sometimes be weaknesses. Our education, for instance, can cause us to overcomplicate things when there are easier solutions to problems. Maybe we get hurt in a relationship, and so what we do is we kind of don't let people in, and that feels strong, except it makes us weak because we're missing out on relationships. And if we understand this principle, it's actually good news because it teaches us to rely less on our own abilities and more on what God can do. One of the things I've realized over the years is that my years of experience in ministry, it can be a strength, but it can also be a weakness because then it's really easy with a lot of experience to say things like, oh, we've never done it that way before, right? Or that won't work. We tried it. It didn't work. Well, just because it didn't work then doesn't mean it won't work now. See, experience can be a strength, but experience can also be just a synonym for baggage. So I work hard to discipline myself and try to stay, instead of saying things like, well, that won't, you know, we tried that, it didn't work, say, here's why it didn't work, but maybe it can work this time, especially if we do it a little differently and avoid some of the problems back then. While back a younger pastor asked me, what do you do differently now that 
you didn't do when you first started out. And I said to him, I said, well, now I work really hard to become incompetent again. And he said, that doesn't make any sense. That's not what I expected you to say, right? And I said, well, when I didn't know what I was doing, it was easier to be brave because I figured I was going to be fired anyway, so might as well go out with a bang. And, and I was forced to cling to Jesus because I didn't know what I was doing. And now the temptation is to think that I do and just solve things myself. So I work really hard at becoming incompetent again. And now you might be thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense, Scott, because that presumes that you ever became competent in the first place. Right? And if you're thinking that, look, I succeeded beyond my wildest dreams, right? Sometimes our weaknesses make us strong. Our strengths can make us weak. And because those two things are true... With Jesus, always expect the unexpected. Deborah is an unexpected warrior. Jael is an unexpected hero. Sisera is an unexpected idiot. And the biggest unexpected thing of all is that no matter how strong evil and oppression and injustice look, they will not always win. In the next chapter, there's a scene where Sisera's mother is back home wondering why he hasn't returned from the battle. She doesn't think he has a tent peg through his head. And one of her servants says, are they not finding and dividing the spoils, you know, of the battle? A woman or two for each man. Whoa. In the Hebrew, it's even more graphic. Literally a womb or two for each man. Just body parts to be violently exploited. See, Cicero was part of a culture that burned children alive and called it worship. And that raped women and called it victory. And God is against all that stuff. And that's what God was trying to deliver his people from through Deborah and through Jael. God says, not this time, Uh uh-uh, not this time, no, no dice, not this time. Evil and oppression don't win this time. And that's unexpected because, see, it's easy to get cynical and think, well, things have always been this way and they will always be this way. And evil and oppression and the dark side, it always, always seems to win. Certainly that is what you would have thought that Friday afternoon when Jesus died on a cross, right? The religious leaders' bigotry, the political oppression of Rome, the violence of a crucifixion, they all seem to win. But three days later, surprise, he's alive. That's like the biggest surprise of all, right? Jesus doesn't conquer violence with more violence, the way you see in our action movies. Jesus absorbs violence and hate and fear and sin on the cross and conquered them by rising again, showing that love always wins every time. Love always wins. And the things that looked weak, like a cross, actually are strength because they reconcile us to God. And the thing that looked strong, like the Roman Empire, were ultimately powerless against an itinerant Jewish carpenter with no money and only 12 followers, one of whom turned out to be a real disappointment, and the other 11 were just cowards. And the tent peg that jail hammers through Sisera's head is a foreshadowing of the nails that will be driven through Jesus' hands and feet which he uses to reconcile us to God. That's a surprise. No other God in any other religion would ever do such a thing. That's not what gods in other religions do, but our God, the God revealed in Jesus, this is what he does. And maybe the most surprising thing of all in, this, in, this, in the whole book of Judges is that no matter how many cycles the Israelites go through of forgetting about God when things are good and only going to God when things are bad and then forgetting about God, no matter how many cycles they go through, God delivers them every single time. You'd think somewhere around chapter 6 or 7, God would be like, I'm out. Right? Like, you guys are hopeless. Forget about it. But God never gives up. The end of Deborah's story says, then the land had peace 40 years. And yes, 
After 40 years, the cycle started again. And yes, evil and injustice are still with us, but they do not always win. Jesus gives us victories along the way, and one day he will return and set everything right. Which means, like Deborah and Jael, the age of heroes has not passed. And God calls all of us to be part of his rescue mission to defeat sin and injustice and violence. And maybe for you, maybe that means an inner battle to defeat some addiction. Maybe it's to help someone else, maybe by visiting the elderly who always seem to be left out and ignored and forgotten or helping children who are struggling in school or, or, or working toward racial healing or, or simply caring for a neighbor or a friend or someone you know. I've shared with you before that when I was in seminary, I worked in a hospital as a chaplain as part of my training for a season. And I've shared with you that the first room I walked into on my first day, the person died. And then the second room I walked into, the man cussed at me and yelled at me and told me to get out and never come back, right? Probably because he heard about what happened in the first room, right? He's like, pastor of death, go away, right? Well, there's kind of more to that story than, than I've shared. So when I started working there, the, my supervisor asked me how I felt about death. And at the time, I had this terrible fear of death, which stupidly I told him about. And so guess where he assigned me? He assigned me to a floor where most of the patients were terminal for various reasons. And my first day on the job, first day, I, I spent most of the day just walking the halls because I was too afraid to go into a room. Right? But I kept feeling God kind of nudge me toward this one room. So finally I went in. And there was a woman by her husband's bed. And so I went over and I began talking to her. And then I noticed that her husband's breathing was really irregular. And I said something about it. And she said, he's dying. And so I started like freak out. Right? Like I'd never seen anyone die. And I was like, okay, come first room, first day. Come on, God, couldn't this have waited till day two? Come, I mean, come on, right? So in a panic, I said, do you want me to go get a doctor? And she said, what good would that do? And she had a point, right? So I didn't know what to do. So I did what any good seminary student would do in a situation like that. I started to talk about theology. Why, you know, where's God when it hurts? You know, intellectual stuff, because that's my strength. Well, her body language made it crystal clear she didn't need any of that, right? So I thought, well, I guess all I can do is shut up and pray. Oh, maybe that's better. And when I shut up, she started to talk about her grief and began to cry. And as she did that, her husband died. And we sat in silence for a while, and then I said, can I pray for you? And she said, well, actually, I would like it if you would pray with us. And I was kind of like, us? And, and I was like, what? Oh, the body. So I held hands with her and her husband's body, and I prayed for a while. And it was this very holy moment, and it was clear to both of us that Jesus was in the room. And I finished praying, and we talked a little bit more. And, and then when we were done, I, I walked her out of the room, and I walked her to the elevator because she was going to leave and get in her car. And as we were leaving, she said to me, you have a hard job. And I said, well, actually, this is my first day. And she reached out and patted my shoulder and said, oh, you did a very good job, dear. <laughs> my strength, intellectual theology stuff, was a weakness in that moment. My weakness... Not knowing what to do was a strength because it shut me up, which allowed her to process her grief. And then the surprising thing, because we'd invited Jesus into that room and into that place, there was peace and calm and I would say even life in the face of death. And that one moment was probably the most significant moment for me, the most significant step in me in learning to be far, far less afraid of death. Right? Who would have thought it?
Who would have thunk it, right? What a surprise. Death cured me of my fear of death. So how can God surprise you this week? Because that's what God does. If we're following God, he's gonna surprise us. Is there a risk that you're afraid to take? Give it to Jesus and watch him use even your weaknesses as strengths. Is there something you're relying on because it makes you feel strong? Maybe rely less on that thing and more on God. And how might God wanna use you this week with all your strengths, with all your weaknesses in tow to bring his healing to someone who needs it that you know or that you're gonna run into? Our God can, will, and does do unlikely and surprising things with unlikely people in unlikely ways at unlikely times in unlikely places. So this week, expect the unexpected and see what Jesus can do. So Jesus, thank you that you are here. Thank you that you aren't what we can predict. Thank you that you don't do what we think you should do. Thank you that you zig when we zag. Thank you that you surprise us. It just shows we didn't make you up. So Jesus, surprise us this week where we are complacent, where we are just following what we think is you and it's not really you. Jesus, wake us up. Help us to follow the real you. Surprise us. Help us to see what you can do. Things we couldn't predict, things we wouldn't think of. And Jesus, help us to be more like you. We ask this in your name. Amen.